The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. She was stylish and smart and bent on improving everything she touched. She used work and anger and was impossible to please. We attended church services several times a week, often without my wandering dad, and I learned quickly not to speak to others about our real life. I lived in constant fear of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing and the resulting punishment that would come for my frazzled, angry mom. My dad, when he was home, was emotionally distant, someone I wanted to know who showed no interest in me. I coped by trying to read the moods of the adults around me to keep some level of order and predictability in my life. I tried to control how others felt by being the perfect child. I learned to lie for my parents. I learned that information is power and that gossip could be used to control. I took care of grown-ups whose job it was to take care of me. And when all else failed, I learned to escape into my own fantasy world of books and pretend. I lived in fear. Little did I know that these patterns of thinking would persist throughout much of my life, leading me on a path of destruction called codependency. At the age of eight, I asked Jesus into my heart at Sunday school. Night after night, I prayed that God would stop the fighting in our family. But as the years passed, the struggles in our family only worsened, and with my childish understanding of God, I became more and more untrusting of people, and eventually God. Exodus 25 describes what was happening in my family. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. In the eighth grade, this now insecure, anxious, and depressed adolescent was handed his first drink of alcohol. I can remember it like it was yesterday. As I too quickly guzzled that liquid, knowing it was wrong, something unfortunate happened inside of me. The feelings of insecurity and anxiety drifted away. I began to feel so good, and this caused me to behave differently, more freely than I'd ever known before. I had discovered liquid courage, and boy, did I like it. I had found something new and exciting to run to, my pacifier, my new peace provider. As an adolescent, I was totally emotionally unprepared to handle it or understand where it would lead me. Proverbs 27.12 describes the journey I headed into. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. Rather than taking refuge, I began a pattern of wanting to feel that good again. So I pursued alcohol every weekend, and I began hanging out with the crowd who had these same desires. Three years later, it was 1968, the hippie era, someone handed me my first joint. And just like my first drink, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I loved it and was instantly addicted. My new pacifier. I began a daily pursuit of marijuana as it took control of my life. If I or a friend had some, I was happy and stoned. If we didn't, I was stressed and anxious, and my total focus and conversation was on how to get some more. I was an addict though I was years away from that most important understanding. When I was 18, I was still living at home, but was rarely at home. My lifestyle still totally unknown to my family. Then one day, my dad found some pot in my room. My covers were pulled. Through tears, he begged me to quit, but I, being fully addicted for over two years, stood up to him in that moment and said I had no intention of quitting. 
He said, then you cannot live in my home. This was great for me because I'd not wanted to live at home for years, and I made the choice that most addicts will face at some point in their lives. I walked away from my family so I could keep getting high. I ran. I chose drugs over the most important relationships. I found myself on the streets, so I went to my friends who had pot and also a place I could crash. As an addict, these were not important relationships. They were just people I could use to meet my needs. The problem was, on the streets, these friends did not just have pot. They had every drug known. It took no time at all for me to discover my life drug of choice, the drug that brought peace like I had never experienced, heroin, opiates. They were all shooting it, and at first I laughed and swore I would never do something like that. But every time we used, which became every day, they offered me the syringe, telling me how much better it was than snorting. Within weeks, I was shooting heroin. Through that rush and the hours of nodding out it provided, I had found my true peace provider, my pacifier. I became a proclaimed and outspoken atheist to rationalize my slide away from any and all values of a healthy life. Like every junkie, somewhere along the line, I got hepatitis C from sharing needles. My friends were robbing drugstores to obtain our drugs, and it wasn't long before they were arrested. This woke me up to some degree, and I decided to quit shooting drugs. So I began to hang out with other addicts, friends, who were not shooting, but they were drinking, snorting, smoking, or popping anything we could get our hands on. When I was 16, <clears throat> my mom did something that turned my world upside down. She left my dad and moved to Houston. Always before, my mom had kicked my dad out of the house. This was something different. She was leaving and taking my two younger sisters with her. For the first time, I stood up to her. I refused to go with her. Instead, I chose to stay in Oklahoma to help my dad. I was a depressed, unsupervised 16-year-old. I started smoking, drag racing cars, and having beer parties at our house. A few months later, upon hearing this news, my mom agreed to reunite our family if my dad would make a move to Colorado. <clears throat> Despite my fears that I would never again have a social life, this move was one of the best things that ever happened to me, though it did not solve my parents' problems for very long. <clears throat> it was a wonderful time of our family being together again. I turned over a new leaf, made new friends easily, something I had thought was impossible, and joined a Christian youth group called Young Life. God was giving me a choice, one I think he often gives teens, a choice to turn my childhood decision into an adult decision to follow him. Sadly, I chose to follow a boy instead, always on the lookout for my Prince Charming. This boy would become an obsession for me. Over the next 10 years, I pursued him, married him, and then divorced him. He was an alcoholic, I was a workaholic. Work was the only place I felt successful. Work met my needs for attention, achievement, and filled up my time with helping others, allowing me to avoid dealing with my own issues. And as is true with any addiction, it robbed me of life. At age 26, after years of stress and self-neglect, I found myself hospitalized with a life-threatening kidney disease. This was a wake-up call that changed a lot of things for me. After a time, I healed physically, but not yet spiritually. My husband and I were divorced, and I made a decision to take life much less seriously. That's when I met Scott at a work party. 
He was the opposite of everything I had always thought was important. His stated goal in life was to be happy. He had never taken the conventional path and loved to take risks. I had been following the rules all my life and had failed miserably. He was recklessly irresponsible and I was hopelessly controlling. Once again, a relationship became my obsession. I loved the way he made me feel. Maybe I had at last found my Prince Charming. My biological clock was ticking and I wanted to have children. So at some point I decided we would be happy ever after if we were married. All I needed to do now was get carefree, fun-loving Scott to go along with my plan. Well, she did. Little did she realize that those patterns from her childhood were repeating themselves as they always will without God and his recovery in our lives. Proverbs says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats their folly. Little did I know that the God I did not believe existed would use Susie to bring me to him. But a lot had to happen first. As I became a husband and a father, I became a functional addict, always holding a job, making a living, and in my free time playing rugby, where I was becoming a nationally recognized referee. But what I was really living for was the relief from anxiety that having a pocket full of prescription narcotics would bring. Our relationship became a classic passive, passive nodding addict with an angry, controlling codependent. And for a while, it worked so well. I didn't care about or do much. She cared about and did everything. It was chemistry. Like every addict, I eventually got arrested and the courts took control of my life. The great news was that I am a high-bottom addict. All it took for me was the sound inside of those steel bars slowly closing shut in front of me to begin to scare me straight. That was my bottom. For most addicts, it takes so much more. I'm grateful for that. In the years before Scott's arrest, he was traveling on the weekends to referee rugby while I stayed home to care for the boys and keep house. I complained, criticized, pouted, and hollered with rage as my fears of being rejected by him grew with his absences. Scott withdrew even more. We moved through life together like strangers. I felt like a failure, exhausted from keeping up the pretense that we were doing just fine. I was filled with resentment toward my parents and anger with myself for my failure to create the life I had always dreamed of. I had a deep-rooted fear that came from an underlying awareness that my home was beginning to look a lot like the home I grew up in. I went back to work, finding escape once again in my workaholism. Then, while I was at work one day, it all changed. I answered the phone and was shocked to hear the police looking for my husband. No, he had not been in an accident. They wanted to arrest him. Stunned, I quickly went into action. <laughs> First, I called a lawyer. Then I went to find Scott and give him the plan for fixing things, even before I knew what was broken, mind you. We would hire a good lawyer, go to a counselor, talk to our pastor. Yes, believe it or not, we had been attending a little church. God was working, but his love was unfolding in a way I certainly would have never asked for. All those prayers for a loving family I had prayed as a little girl were going to be answered in a way I could have never thought would be for the good. 
Romans 8:38 says, "For I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't and life can't. The angels won't and all the powers of hell itself cannot keep God's love away. Nothing at all." The courts gave me instructions and told me if I did not follow them, I was going back behind bars, and the DA was seeking 10 years. Fortunately, I believed them. This was the worst time of my life. I literally did not think I could live without drugs, but I could not use or I would go to prison, which for me was not an option. The next year would be the lowest of my life. The courts mandated I go to Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous meetings every day for three months. I did this 90-90, as it's called, because I had no choice or to go to prison. They also mandated five meetings a week for the first full year, so I did over 300 meetings my first year because I was told if I didn't, I would go to prison. I did court-supervised drug testing because they knew they couldn't trust me, and I stayed clean because if I didn't, I would go to prison. It was the hell of the first year of sobriety of a lifetime addict. I didn't realize it for a while, but slowly a miracle began to unfold. Going to meetings, getting a sponsor, and working the steps began to work because as feeble as my attempts were in those days, I kept hearing at every meeting the truth that it works if you work it. Susie and my boys stood by, and God was working. Still being in control, Susie had us going to church as a family. It was one of those beautiful spring days you only get in Colorado. Blue skies and crisp air. I remember it so well, I can literally smell the fresh air. Tyler came inside from playing in the backyard. Scott was back at work a few months along in his own recovery. He was getting better, and I was getting bitter. I was scared to death. When I wasn't scared he would start doing pills again, I was scared he would leave me now that he was sober and learning how to live life without drugs. I looked out the window and saw a mess of toys thrown all over the backyard. I came unglued. Angry, I sent Tyler out to put things in the shed and said I would be back soon to check on how he did. When I went back to check, he had done a bad job and the shed doors would not shut. I started throwing toys around the yard and yelling loudly, like neighborhood reaching loudly. I looked at his face and in his eyes I saw the baffled face of the child I had once been, hurt and struggling to figure out how to please an unpleasable mom. So maybe Scott and I were not meant for happy ever after, but this angry mom behavior was a pattern I would not repeat. At the end of myself, with no options available, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. These are 12-step recovery meetings for loved ones of alcoholics. Scott's counselor had suggested I attend strongly a few months before. I thought this was a nutty idea. I was not an addict. I was not the one with a problem. He was. Why should I go to some silly meeting with a bunch of some crazies? Her suggestion had only given me one more thing to be angry about. But that day, I decided to go to Al-Anon. I was powerless. The acceptance I felt there and the wisdom I heard in those rooms saved my life. There, I learned to admit how afraid I really was. I learned how I fought fear with the same coping skills I'd learned as a child. Always be prepared for the worst. Life is unpredictable. Be perfect, 
And if you can't be perfect, be ready to defend yourself. People will disappoint you. Don't trust them. God does not care about you. Don't trust him either. But here, in this strange recovery culture, the more imperfect you admitted you were, the more acceptable you became. It was an Alice in Wonderland experience. 1 John 4.8 says, There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The 12 steps are a spiritual program of action. I was growing up, not just emotionally, but also spiritually. As I recovered and grieved the losses of my childhood, my relationship with my one and only true higher power, Jesus Christ, was being restored. I was now able to receive God's love just as I am, imperfect. As I worked through the steps the first time, finally with an adult mind, I surrendered to his love and rededicated my life to his care. Then call on me when you are in trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will give me glory. Psalm 50, 15. After a year of sobriety and being unemployed, which meant I had nothing else to do but work the program and Master Mario 3, which was just out that year, <laughs> I got a job, and I was, I was successful in operating in sobriety for the first time in my adult life. The job transferred me from Denver, Colorado to, of all places, Modesto, California. We landed there in March of 1994. I was three years and three months sober. God was still just a higher power as I understood him. Then we walked through the doors of Big Valley Church in the spring of 1994, and God called my name and told me his name was Jesus. And I prayed a prayer for him to forgive me of all the wreckage of my life. Sorry, and come into my heart as my Lord and Savior. I became spiritually alive. As one of my favorite songs says, I saw the light and God blessed me with knowing it. There was no turning back and on September 25th, 1994, I was baptized and I made the public commitment to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. I became on fire. I started telling people about it. I made friends with pastors. I attended classes. I started serving, first by joining the choir, then by serving with Susie as mentors to young singles and eventually leading a home group. Then possibly the biggest miracle of my life happened 20 short months after my baptism. In August 1996, the singles pastor, who Susie was now working for, called me into his office and asked me the most stunning question I had ever heard in my life. He said, Scott, we see something in you, and would you like, and we would like you to explore becoming a pastor and coming to work here. Would you consider that? You could have picked me up off the floor that day. You see, they did not know the story I have now told you. But I did. They had to be kidding. They would never hire me if they knew. Well, I interviewed for the job multiple times and told them my story every time, and they either were not listening or they did not care because they hired me. <laughs> That was October 1st, 1996. 18 short months later, I was licensed as a pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Forgetting all its benefits. 
As I went to work in this strange new environment, it quickly was clear to me that no one ever asked or spoke again about the parts of me that were my old addictive behaviors. Noticeable to me as well was that nobody else on staff talked about their past either, not to mention any of their current struggles. But I could see that they, just like me, had plenty of hurts, habits, and hang-ups of their own. Knowing this, I grabbed a bunch of pastors and using what I had learned in recovery, we created a safe place for us to share anything with each other. We met weekly for over three years. During these years, Susie was working to bring recovery to our church through her circles. Then, in 2003, God used us and a few others to begin celebrate recovery at our church. One of the most unique and accomplishments and blessings occurred very quickly because our safe group of pastors, every one of them, agreed to go through the first men's step study we ever did. We had built enough trust with each other to do this, and they also allowed me to bring into our step study a group of fellow addicts I knew well and trusted from Alcoholics Anonymous and Sexual Addiction Anonymous. What a year that was, and the rest is history. Those pastors each became the biggest supporters of CR at our church. They courageously stepped out with their own testimonies, and most began their own groups. I did nothing but watch God do his work as the ministry grew and thrived. Today, Celebrate Recovery is simply the DNA of our church. So many pastors and their wives, many of the elders and their wives, the support staff and their husbands all see themselves as in recovery and walk alongside the now hundreds of people who attend at some level every week. I have now been a full-time recovery pastor for 13 years and was blessed to serve Saddleback and Celebrate Recovery for nine years as the state rep for the six counties of our region of Central California. For the last three years, I have transitioned to become the international rep for the nations of India and Nepal. And Susie and I now travel internationally to tell our story and spread recovery all over the world. All this is the fruit of but one transformed life to but make no mistake, the most important transformation has been in my personal relationships. First and foremost, my relationship with Jesus Christ, then with my wife and family. You see, I'm not running very often anymore, and certainly not to the things that used to destroy me. Jesus is my pacifier, and the true peace he provides is real. Today I stand before you with 28 years and 30 days sober, and I've been a pastor for over 22 Before Christ in recovery, I'd never held a job more than four years. May you forget not his benefits, Psalm 103, through our story. Who forgives all your sins? They were all forgiven 2,000 years ago on that cross. So that today, I walk in freedom, and you can too, because of only one thing, his amazing grace towards a very broken man and his family. He offers it to every one of us. Who heals all your diseases? I've been clean from any traces of hepatitis C for 20 years, and he carried me through the chemo treatments without me ever even feeling sick. He can do the same for anyone. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? You've heard my story, and Susie will finish with the greatest news, a redeemed family. Make no mistake, I remain a broken man, but today I have Christ and the safe rooms of recovery to keep me from ever allowing a particular pacifier to control and master me. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like an eagle? This may be the greatest miracle. You see, my desires have completely changed, and I didn't do it. This once selfish, lying, cheating, stealing addict today actually cares deeply for other people most of the time. This is the sanctifying work of our God through the 12 steps of recovery. Ephesians 2 says, now to him who is able to accomplish more than we could ever ask or imagine. Well, 28 years ago, all I asked for or imagined was my selfish desires. 
to not hurt anymore and to get what I wanted, which included the selfishness of desiring to get high every day. I hit rock bottom because God had a plan for my life. Through the Holy Spirit, he has brought me to the place where I recognize that verse goes on to say he is able to accomplish all that we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. The miracle is that because of his love, which never fails, and its power, he has transformed my life, my thinking, my very desires. Today, I have my priorities straight. I want what he desires. He's shown me that he will never hurt me because he loves me. There is no bad to be found in living for Jesus. He offers the same to you. May you hear and seek his benefits today, one day at a time, for the rest of your lives. My 12-step recovery journey began many years ago, yet I keep coming back. Almost three decades worth of meetings and relapses and step studies and gratitude lists and reading books on recovery and listening to God and trying to control and surrendering again. I do not ever foresee a day that I will not need to be part of this type of group. These 12 steps are the spiritual disciplines that keep me sane. Every day, more than once, I practice step three, surrendering my life and my will to the care of God. Each morning, I set aside at least a few minutes for reflection. I surrender my day to the Lord by telling him what I'm concerned about that day and asking him to get me through it or keep me away from it whichever will bring him most glory. I read from the scriptures and frequently I write about what he is revealing to me through his word. I listen. My father is with me. And I experience his love. And after all, my story is a love story. No more searching for Prince Charming. I am loved by and in love with the king. I am learning to follow, to be available, and to go where he leads. I enjoy life without longing for what is not, but enjoying what is. I'm learning to accept my limits. There are new ones all the time. And to laugh at myself. Instead of resentment, I feel contentment. God has answered impossible ways the prayers I prayed as a little girl all those years ago. He has given me the miracle in a way I could have never asked for or even imagined. My family has been changed. There is love in my home. There is peace in my home. Well, most of the time. I have a husband who is drug-free and faithful to me. I have two sons who love the Lord, and now two beautiful daughters and four grandchildren who are being raised by parents who love each other and the Lord. I'm not bragging. I am humbled and overwhelmed that the God of the universe would be mindful of me the little girl who prayed for her family to experience a miracle. I am happy to let God use me and no longer expect to be the perfect anything, including pastor's wife. I am just me. I know God loves me just as I am, and who am I to argue with God? Above all, I am thankful, thankful that God chose me when I was eight, thankful that he protected me so faithfully and showed great mercy to me during my years of unfaithfulness. I am thankful that God never wastes a hurt, and I now have almost 30 years of giving back the experience, strength, and hope that God has given me. I am thankful to serve in a church where people can come and be real about what is happening in their lives so they don't have to lie and pretend like my family did. Who am I, O God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? You speak as though I were someone very great. What more can I say about the way you have honored me? 
you know what I am really like. For my sake, O Lord, and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known. Today as we close, test. Test, come on. Today as we close, last year at this time, I brought the message of my favorite step, which is the 11th. To paraphrase, it says, I seek through prayer and meditation and daily Bible reading to improve my relationship with Jesus, surrendering to his will so that I can only seek that perfect and pleasing will, and then the power only he can offer that I could possibly carry that out one day at a time. This reflects to me very well Jesus' challenge to Nicodemus and every one of us in John 3. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born once of the water of your mother and once of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to the flesh. The spirit gives birth to the spirit. And we shouldn't be surprised by needing to be born again because the wind blows wherever it pleases. We do not, we hear it sound, but we don't know where it came from or where it's going. He said we all must be born again by the spirit. Today, some of you in the crowd this side may be sitting here questioning whether you even know that rebirth of the Spirit in your life. Or maybe you're sitting here knowing you've never even asked Him for that rebirth in your life. Don't leave here without that gift. It's the greatest life. It's the abundant life. Today, just ask Him to forgive you of all your sins and come into your heart. Tell him you desire that personal relationship with him, and it will be secured for you. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. But for all of us sitting here, most who know Jesus, the question is, what's your story? Because you see, we should all have received that spirit in our life at some point, but then we don't know where he's going to lead us, because it's not our will, it's his will. And 24 years ago, I sat in that church I didn't even know I needed a savior he blew into my life and he let me know it and today I stand here who could have dreamed that story I just told you I couldn't have dreamed it and I can't dream that I'd be standing here speaking to you of it in Burbank California 24 years later and so today I just ask you what is your story write it down be willing to tell it because he's speaking to you today that you have your story to tell. This is Story City Church. Your story is welcome here and it needs to be his story so that people all over this area can know what you know and what we know. Tell the, dif tell the people the difference Jesus has made in your life. And it's my experience, sadly, that so few do this. And what they tell is the story of what they value, and that's the things of this world rather than our Savior. Don't let your story be one of value of this world, of chasing the wind with a world that will never satisfy you with the desires of the good things that only Christ can bring. I thank you. We thank you for letting us share our story today. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you are a miracle maker. You are who can, who can change a life, who can transform a mind, who can reach a heart, but you and your spirit. 
Lord, we all sit here knowing and desiring to live the abundant life that you came to offer. If we're here today and we're carrying a heavy load, you say, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will give us rest. So, Lord, would each person leave here today looking at their life story and being willing to tell it the future of Story City is to reach this city and this world with your gospel. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's thank the Millers one more time for sharing with us this morning. You know, I've heard your story. you to speak to me this morning as I believe he has with a lot in our church today I don't know if you sometimes come to church and you hear people share stories or you see people on a stage or you watch people that walk past you and you wonder can that really be real can that be my story why is it my story that story And I wonder this morning if you listen to the Millers share their story and you identified yourself in their story. I know I did. And as I heard your story this morning, I thought, Lord, I... I need your grace in my life, in my family's life. And I think some of you probably identify yourself in the Miller story as well this morning. And you're wondering if the grace of God can transform your life as well. As you're speaking, I was remembering Psalm chapter 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. I wonder is if you listen to the story this morning and the Lord is drawing near to you and your broken-hearted story. I want to say to you this morning, the grace of God is near. I hope it's near because I need it this morning. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all. Is that your story this morning? Do you need the grace of God to intervene in your life today? Is your family a wreck? Is your life a wreck this morning? I believe the Lord sent the Millers to us to tell us. God can take your story and transform it into something beautiful. Is that you this morning? Can I just ask you, can I pray over you today? Can I do something we've never, ever done before in Story City? In fact, I wasn't even supposed to be on stage this morning. But as I'm listening to the Millers, the Lord was speaking to me, and I believe he's spoken to many in our 
auditorium this morning. Can I pray over you? Can we pray over you? Maybe if you would even just have the boldness to say, you know what? I need the grace of God in my life. I want to ask you to do something we've never done before. If that's you, would you do me a favor? I'd like to ask you if you say, I need prayer in my life. Would you just stand or maybe even come down to the front and let us pray over you this morning? We've never done this before. That's you. Just come down front, stand. We'd love to pray over you this morning. coming down, I want to say this before I pray. Maybe you found yourself in church this morning. It's the turn of a new year and you're wondering if this year can be different than last year. Maybe you find yourself in church this morning and you've never come to a place in your life where you've trusted your life to Jesus for salvation. Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all. Have you ever given your life to Jesus? I can tell you, the story the Miller shared this morning would only be a temporary victory if not for Jesus. not be a lasting victory if not for Jesus. And so whatever change you're deciding in your heart needs to happen today from hearing their story, can I say to you, it's only a temporary change unless Jesus is involved. And that begins by trusting your life to Jesus. Have you ever done that? If not, I want to invite you into that today. There's nothing magical or mystical. It'll make you stand on stage and say anything you don't want to say. It's simply a moment where you have a moment with the Lord and say, God, I know who I am. I have sinned and my sin has offended you, but the grace of God is greater than my sin. And today, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin and save me? If you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that today. If you're not standing down front or standing in your seat, Would you do me a favor and just surround the people around you? And let's just have a moment of prayer in our church this morning. Would you just surround the people around you? And let's just begin to pray, and I will close us out in prayer this morning. Let's pray for those around us. over those in this auditorium this morning who are publicly acknowledging in humility that they need the grace of God to intervene in their life. Jesus, I am one of them. Father, I want my kids to grow up in the fear of the Lord 
not in the fear of their father. Father, I pray for stories represented in this room this morning. God, those who are at the very end. God, those who have given up. God, those who have thrown in the towel. Those who are wondering if it ever can be different. God, those wondering if this year will be different than last year. Jesus, those who are addicted this morning. God, those whose marriages are all but done this morning. Those who have relationships who are all but severed this morning. Jesus, we invite the grace of God. God, we don't need temporary change. We don't need a decision to change us today. We need a Savior to change us permanently, Lord. God, so we invite you. As Titus 2.11 says, the grace of God that has appeared most demonstrated in this Christmas season when you left heaven and came to earth as a child. You initiated that offer to humanity, broken humanity that's been broken since the garden. God, we acknowledge this morning, this is not the way it was intended to be, but the grace of God offers us renewal and redemption and restoration. And God, because of Jesus, we believe this morning that every story in this room can become restored to you and to one another. And God, we invite that restoration through the grace of God this morning. God, I pray over stories that are represented here, people who are brokenhearted. God, we trust in your promise. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who trust in him. So this morning, we trust in you, God. We trust in you, God. Not ourselves. Not in our ability to save ourselves. Not in our ability to change ourselves. We trust in you, God, by the spirit of the living God. Would you help us? God, I'm reminded, would you help us become people who are not self-righteous, don't look at other people with problems and wonder why can't they ever get it straight and get it right would you help us become people who demonstrate the grace that's been given to us God we are all beggars telling other beggars where to get food help us become that help us become that church Help us become those people. Help us become those families. God, we need you. God, we need you.